I don't think he's like Yoda. <laughs> this is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. This week, Virgin Money CEO Jane Ann Gaddier. I was sat next to Richard and I was enthralled because, as you said earlier, you know, I'd grown up really thinking of him as a rock star rather than a businessman. And as we were talking, um, he said to me, what time is it? And I went, oh, I've lost my watch. He said, really, we'd better look for it. So everybody sort of looked up, stood up, looked round the table. And um, as we sat down again, he put his hand into his breast pocket and he pulled out this watch. He said, do you mean this watch? And I said to him, how on earth did you do that? And he said, I hypnotised you. This week, we're joined by the Virgin Banker, who is donating all the money from her new book to the Heads Together campaign. Jane Angadia, Chief Executive of Virgin Money, welcome to City AM Unregulated. Before we talk about Heads Together, which is a mental health charity, Jane Anne, you're young. Why a memoir now? Why write this book? Because the journey of Virgin Money has been so extraordinary based on my own expectations of my career, lots of us had said over time, oh, there must be a book in it at some point. I'd never written anything like it before. I wrote it all on my Blackberry. Oh, chapter wow. at a time, or a couple of chapters at a time. That's and a great advert for Blackberry keyboards there. Uh, uh, but I've now given up my Blackberry, gone to an iPhone, and I couldn't do a book on an iPhone. And then last year my parents both died, and the interesting thing is that I wouldn't have written if my mum and dad had still been here, oddly. I don't know why. It was just writing my story at that point just didn't seem right. But having lost both of them very quickly this year, and we all lived together, so it was a big moment, it was very cathartic for me. So... It just felt like the right time to sort of take stock, and that's how it happened. It was more accident than design, really. It was kind of a way of dealing with it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. The foreword in the book is by Richard Branson, who, you know, is probably the most rock star entrepreneur on the planet. I mean, what's your and relation? he looks like a rock star, doesn't oh, yeah, he? Yeah, he really does. Leather well, jacket. There's all the videos of him, like, water jet skiing naked and <laughs> with a naked woman clinging to him and stuff. Um, <laughs> Uh, by the way, if he wants to come on this podcast, we'd love that. Um, <laughs> what What is your relationship with him like? You know, it sounds, a, lo- a lot of the stories in the book are you kind of being summoned to Necker and then you and him having a chat. Is he quite hands-off? Oh, very hands-off. So, I mean, I've now known him since 1994 and, uh, you know, a lot of water's flown under the bridge with all sorts of things in the external environment, in Virgin, in Virgin Money since then. And the thing about Richard is he's always been true to his word, He's always been looking for how he can do the next good thing, whether that's a good business thing or a good thing in the world. And he's always been a huge supporter of mine and of Virgin Money's. And, you know, it's uh, been a, well, I say it's been, it continues to be a huge privilege. He was, uh, we had a launch party last night and uh, he was able to video in for it because he was travelling. He'd been to uh, the far, the Middle East, I think he said he'd been to. Uh, and he was saying, I'm looking forward to the second book because we've still got a long way to go with this business. And that's exactly right. It, this is volume one. So how often do you see him and what are your conversations with him like? Um, how often do I see him? Uh, perhaps four times a year, something like that. Sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on you know what the issues are when we're listing the business. Much more than that. But he's not a hands-on shareholder. He's not a director of the business. He's the founder of the Virgin Group. And after all these years, I like to think a friend, if you see what I mean. What are the conversations like? I mean, they're about all sorts of things, um, about banking, about other businesses, about, you know, what's new in the world, how customers are thinking and feeling. And I've always thought over the years that Richard's really significant brilliance 
is that he seems to be constantly in touch with the mood of people um, and understand what customers want and be able to help them to get it. Um, so it's, yes, it's always a very full conversation, a very thoughtful conversation. There's always fun involved. Does he kind of drop in nuggets of wisdom like Yoda? <laughs> I don't think he's like Yoda. <laughs> he, the thing that he's done, and he does for all of his companies, I think, but he's particularly done for me, is he drops in nuggets of human wisdom. I think his another part of his brilliance has been making sure that the Virgin Group companies understand that the only important things are people and how you look after your customers and how you look after your staff is, as I say, the most important thing. Do you see him as a kind of mentor figure? Um, Do you have other mentors? Uh, yes, I've, I think... It, so I've, I would say there have been three mentors in my life, if I may. Richard would be one of them. Sir Brian Pittman would be another who used to run Lloyds Bank. And this isn't perhaps this isn't really a mentor because I've only met him once and that was quite recently, but I've always been hugely inspired by Alec Ferguson. So <laughs> Quite a diverse group the, there. Yeah, and unfortunately all men, right? So uh, we'll, we'll see whether we can change that going forwards. So what do they bring? I think Richard definitely has brought an ability to bring the human side of people to business. Brian Pittman, who was fantastic, knew everything there was about banking. What he did for me, I met him when Northern Rock was first in difficulty and Virgin Money tried to save it. And uh, all of the establishment wanted to talk to Brian because he was the most senior banker around and had been through so much. They wanted his wisdom and advice. And uh, he always said that he would only go to these meetings. He was asked if he could take me with him. I mean, what a brilliant thing to do for somebody. I hope I can do that for somebody in the future because it was I would never have met half of the people I've met if he hadn't done that. Um, that is awesome. Uh, really awesome. And then Alec Ferguson, I mean, I, I've been a Man United fan for a long time and uh, we Virgin Money are now Man United's financial services partner in the UK, which I didn't do myself because of that conflict of interest. <laughs> and so they, when the deal was signed and it got off to a good start, we, um, we they invited us to uh, Old Trafford to see the ground and to hear Sir Alec's speak and uh, there are about 50 of the Virgin Money team there not all football fans not certainly not all Man United fans and you could have heard a pin drop and the wisdom that came out was fabulous and the thing that everybody remembers in that and played back to me quite often he said complacency is a disease I've always worked on the basis that complacency is a disease and I think that'll stay with us for a long time I mean it's Richard Branson the kind of person who would get jealous of that of your kind of relationship with other mentors oh I don't think so I think that um as we all get older I think those sort of feelings get more mature the right word I guess um I mean I feel the same myself that I think you get more open with the way in which you interact with people and more generous perhaps in the way in which you give of yourself to people don't you as you get older I've felt it and I see it in people um, and I think Richard's generosity of spirit has only grown over time, so I don't certainly don't feel any of that. But, you know, if I need him, he's always there on the end of the phone or at the end of my text messages whenever I need him. I was a bit creeped out by the story about him hypnotising you over dinner. Can you just <laughs> tell that to our listeners? Yeah, so this was um, the first time I'd ever sat next to him at dinner, so it was right back, right back in Christmas 1994. 
And uh, we'd just signed the deal to set up what the predecessor of Virgin Money was called Virgin Direct at the time. I was sat next to Richard and I was enthralled because, as you said earlier, you know, I'd grown up really thinking of him as a rock star rather than a businessman. And there I was sat next to him and he was telling me about how he'd bought Necker Island and how he'd set up Virgin Atlantic, etc. And as we were talking, um, he said to me, what time is it? And he was sat to my right and I wear my watch on my left-hand side and I've always worn a bracelet watch like this and I went oh I've lost my watch and um, he said really we'll better look for it so everybody sort of looked up stood up looked round the table and um, as we sat down again he put his hand into his breast pocket and he pulled out this watch and said do you mean this watch and I said to him how on earth did you do that and he said I hypnotised you he said be ridiculous you can't possibly <laughs> have hypnotised me and he said well let me tell you a story he said when we were building Virgin Atlantic I couldn't afford the cost of the aeroplanes that I needed from Airbus I think and so I took the CEO of Airbus out for dinner and tried to negotiate a better price he said I'm Richard I'm not can't move on price and Richard said I'll tell you what would you move on price if I hypnotized you and this guy said you'll never hypnotize me and Richard said well fair enough then can I have the lower price he said yeah well, fair enough because you'll never hypnotize me so they went through dinner at the end of the dinner Richard said uh, what time is it and the bloke went I've lost my watch. And Richard said, we better look for it. Oh, pulled it out of his pocket. Do you mean this watch? And the guy said, how did you do that? Richard said, I hypnotised you. And he got the aeroplanes for the price that he wanted. <laughs> Has he passed on this magnificent... Oh, I've asked him how to do that, but he's not told me that. <laughs> cruel man. Very cruel. So to move on a bit, you've been very candid in the book and in subsequent interviews about experiencing postnatal depression. Tell me how that came about. You went back to work very quickly after giving birth. Yes, I mean, I think, uh, don't forget, this is nearly 15 years ago now. And I was 41, so I was an old mum, really, at the time, or older mum. And because my life had been pretty settled and my career had a particular path, my husband had given up work, I thought I'd be in control of having my baby and it would just sort of slot into our life. And, of course, she didn't because as soon as she was born the huge amount of love I felt for her and the fact that I'd actually rather be with her than be at work was a very difficult thing to deal with. Which is natural. Absolutely. So I found that I was in a position where I mean, well, hormones are going mad, aren't they? And you've got a new life to look after and you don't get any sleep. And uh, at the same time, trying to deal with going back to work and all of the responsibilities that that brings, definitely got to a place where a moment that I'd expected to have been a really happy one became a very difficult one. You know, it lasted for about two years, I think. Worse at the beginning and easier at the end, but it probably took two years to get through that. But the good news, of course, is whilst that sounds like a long time now, when I look back 15 years later, you know, as Amy's 15 now, you think, well, it seems terrible at the time, but it's a blip and you learn from it. And the good news is... You get through it and life carries on in a brilliant way. Is postnatal depression different to depression? Is there a kind of different darkness? Um, I suppose the answer to that is I I don't really know because I've only experienced what I've experienced, if you see what I mean. Um, But in terms of what that felt like to me, I... Of course, the uh, Harry Potter books weren't out at the time, but when I read them and read about the Dementors, that, for me, was what depression's like. Um, You know, that you... In fact, I just shiver as I've just thought about it. You can imagine this blackness whooshing through the door, a cold, icy 
feeling descending upon you and all of the light being and life being sucked out of you. And I just, I, I don't know whether J.K. Rowling meant that to be depression in her books. Maybe she did. But it's the best description I've had of what I experienced with postnatal depression. Now, I've not had that since. I've had feelings of, um, you know, gosh, um, what's the right way of putting it? Despair, if you like. Can, can I do this? Have I got a problem here? I need to resolve this problem. But I've never had that all-encompassing, you know, your soul's being sucked out. And for me, that's what it felt like. You know, I've had friends who've experienced postnatal depression and the thing that always strikes me with them is they feel like nothing's going to change, like it's going to be the same. How did you get yourself out of that? Uh, I mean, the, the key, I mean, and I definitely recognise that sort of um, concern. For me, it became, you know, I, I was constantly questioning myself about what could I do to make things different. And uh, the thing that I didn't like at all was being at home, which was a real shock to me. Um, I didn't want to be at home and, you know, you. But there's a lot of paraphernalia that comes with babies, isn't there? You know, bottles and heat and things and pictures and all sorts of expensive plastic things. And um, we used to pack it up and go all around the country and stay with friends and go to France and came down to London uh, and stayed in a hotel where I remember saying to my husband, you know what, I can't go back home. And we went back to my parents, actually, and um, put the house, as a consequence, put the house on the market. Sold it quite quickly and moved to a... Um, a, a lovely farmhouse, actually, in the middle of the countryside in near, Nor- near Norwich in Norfolk. And the change really helped because we had to change, you know, we sort of changed everything. And uh, because it was in the countryside, I could get out running, which was is always important to me. You know, if I, if I stop running, I find it much harder to process everything in my head. And uh, so I could get out running in the fresh air early in the morning and have the interest of creating a new life in the new house with the new baby and it started to make a difference. FYI, we checked and the internet squarely agrees that Dementors are an excellent depression metaphor. J.K. Rowling spoke about it in a Times interview with Anne Treneman in 2000. It's not easy to find online but it has been widely quoted and J.K. confirms that yes, Dementors were written with her experience of depression in mind. that really struck me about the book was you talk about going through six rounds of IVF treatment that is how I mean how do you keep working (laughs) when you're going through that I actually went through in the end did I not put it in the book I mean we actually went through 12 in the end because once we'd had Amy we thought we'd try again (laughs) and it didn't work so um how do you keep working um I just said the cycle yeah It's funny, isn't it? Because when you're in it, it feels awful. And now, 15 years later, or not perhaps less than that because we tried further, 10 or 12 years later, I don't really remember how awful that was, which is good. You just sort of put it out of your mind, I think. But I think just a case of... um, Sometimes I think it's easy to tell yourself it's a problem. And if I um, remember thinking about it, it wasn't really that bad. You get through the IVF cycle... And, um, you know, you get to that place where you wait for a fortnight to find out whether or not you're pregnant. And I think that's the difficult, that's the really difficult bit. Um, but, you know, the, a lot of people, the majority of people have some success and we did. And it's worth going through every one of those for that success, I think. Absolutely. Um, so, so mental health has been a big thing this year. We've had the two princes, yep. both of them talking about it. 
Do you think, I mean, in the city, do you think it's kind of glossed over in particular in financial services? I just feel like in the city we're really bad at it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's why the Heads Together campaign is an important one um, because really at its heart it's saying, well, don't you think that... The two, two things that come out to me from the Heads Together campaign, the first is... Um, you know, if, if you go to work with a with cancer or a broken leg, nobody thinks twice about saying, you know, I've got this illness, I need to go and get it sorted out and hopefully I'll get mended and come back to work with everybody's support. If, if you're not 100% sort of mentally healthy, then I think we should feel that we can talk in exactly the same way and have exactly the same sort of response from the people that we work with. Uh, so that's the first thing, you know, we shouldn't be seen to be weak and vulnerable because we've got issues that may be more in the mind than in the body. I think they're equally real. Uh, and the second thing is that it's important to talk about them because if we don't talk about them, we never quite get over the fact that they should, they're equally real and they're nothing to be embarrassed by. What is it, one in four people in the UK go yeah. through something like this at some point in their lives? A friend of mine just um, has just moved back from San Francisco and his partner has had some kind of mental health issues while she was out there. And every apparently everybody just talks about it. Yeah. They just go, oh my God, I've got a therapist, it's fine. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and they'll like send flowers and stuff. Yeah. Like, like somebody's got flu. It just sounds amazing. And that's, isn't that a more mature way of looking at it? Absolutely. Uh, but we don't do it in the city. I mean, I'm, I, I think it, somebody said to me, I didn't know this, but I'm the first FTSE CEO to have talked about this. I find that extraordinary. The Lloyd CEO was signed off with stress. Antonio Hotosorio, but didn't say anything. Well, and I hope, I don't, you know, this isn't me talking about myself, isn't meant to be some sort of um, whining session, to quote somebody on Twitter. Nice. <laughs> um, but but um, it is meant to, to be, some, somebody this morning said to me, you know, in, your, in an organisation, how do you create a culture where it's okay to say? And I think the only way you can do it is to say it yourself. You know, you, you can't ask people to talk about it if you don't talk about anything, whether it's mental health or equality or, you know, delivering the business, if you're not prepared to talk about it yourself as the leader, I think. So as a manager, what what should you do if somebody comes to you and says, look, I'm really struggling at the moment? I think just exactly what you'd do if, um, if somebody came and said, I've got, you know, I don't know, a heart disease or whatever, you know, the flu or something. Well, how much time do you need to have off? How can we support you? Um, and, you know, how do we welcome you back when you're healthy again? I think if we make sure that we, as I say, treat um, the, the health of the mind the same as the health of the body, then what, what, it's the equality point again, really. They're the same. Hey, Emma here. This week's middle of the show shout out goes to our iTunes feed because we love hearing your feedback there. For example, my mate Londoner2344 says not only that it helps him slash her with his Wednesday morning commute, but also that it's informative and entertaining and should be daily. Cheers, mate. We'd love to make it daily, but podcasts take a lot of hard work for us to create. So if you love the show, please leave us a rating and review it in iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. I know podcasters say it all the time, but it really helps. Let's beat the algorithms together. Thanks. Your context book, one thing that really struck me was that you've worked with, met everyone in finance. It's like a who's who's who of finance. So you've got Mark Carney. There's a nice picture of you with him in there. George Osborne, you spoke to a lot. Fred Goodwin, you worked with at RBS. Now, he's a controversial character, best known as Fred the Shred. Um, your relationship with him sounded 
very good. Do you think he's been treated unfairly after the financial crisis? Um, I mean, I haven't spoken to Fred since uh, it would have been probably now, 2008, 2009, something like that. And I felt very sad, really, that, um, you know, he ended up where he ended up on the basis that I know from having worked with him for a few years that actually the thing that he wanted was for RBS to be super successful, for his customers to be looked after and for his shareholders to to make money as a consequence. And, of course, it all went wrong. I think that the problem with RBS, I think, was that when the small RBS that Fred had led very well very successfully acquired NatWest which is what, 2001, I think, from memory. That deal was so successful. Everybody was fated. He was, you know, seemed to be the best CEO in the world ever sort of thing. And I think that led to a really acquisitive phase and um, RBS bought a lot of other businesses, both, I think, in the UK and overseas. And I think it just became too big to control. And the out-of-controlness, in my view, is what led to a lot of problems now that's probably what RBS is suffering from today. There are still areas that perhaps haven't been properly controlled yet. And unfortunately, as a CEO, you have to take responsibility for that. So whilst I think that, uh, you know, the last 10 years or however long it must have been, must have been hugely difficult for him, I'm sure that, like all of us as CEOs, you know, you have to accept that if you take the job, you have to take the responsibility that goes with it. The way he talked about, you know, he's he's almost made to seem quite in, inhuman. But one thing that really struck me was a little story about a post-it note. Yep. Can you enlighten us? Well, it was I was uh, talking to Fred one evening up in Scotland and uh, he was telling me about uh, how he'd made the move to RBS and that he'd had a, a call from uh, Sir George Matheson, well, it was George Matheson at the time, to ask whether he'd like to come to... Fred was working in Australia at the time to ask whether or not he would like to uh, come to RBSSC FO. And he thought hard about it because he was quite keen to come back to Scotland, I think, and said to George, well, actually, I'd rather come back as CEO, so if you ever want me to do that, just give me a call. And and I don't know how long later, but Fred then said, you know, he got back to his office one night and uh, on his desk was a post-it note that his uh, PA had left for him and it just said, uh, please call George Matheson. And he said to me, I thought, gosh, this must be the call that I've been looking forward to. And as I stood there with him that night in Scotland, he put his hand in his pocket and pulled out his wallet, and in his wallet was that post-it note. And I thought that was something that meant a lot. It made me cry a single tear. (laughs) The co-op bank is up for sale, and the two big names that were linked to it were TSB and Virgin Money. TSB has said it doesn't want to buy a co-op bank. That leaves Virgin Money. I mean, we bought Northern Rock... I can't believe it, five and a half years ago now. And, um, you know, that was... And it was very distressed at the time. It Well, in a sense it was, in that, of course, it had been the poster child for the financial crisis. Um, but once it was nationalised, uh, Gary Hoffman was the CEO there. And Gary had done a brilliant job in splitting the bank between the good and the bad bank. We actually bought the good bank. And so when we bought it, it wasn't very distressed. Gary had done an awful lot to clean it up, if you see what I mean. So You had a difficult brand to deal with. You had there was a lot to deal with. Poor staff morale. And, the, I mean, the staff have been absolutely brilliant, and I misjudged that in a in the... I don't know if I want, I want to say the right way or the wrong way, but I'd assumed that it would be difficult to get people that had gone through the crisis and had really loved the Northern Rock brand to really jump quickly to become Virgin Money um, employees. Uh, and, of course, actually, the staff have been the reason that we've done 
we think, pretty well over the last five years in turning that round because so many people had been faced with, you know, will the business survive or not, that to be part of a business that was about growth and, you know, an exciting future was really motivating and everybody threw themselves into it, the Newcastle people, people in uh, Scotland, Norfolk, London, and, you know, it's been great to have that sort of power of people behind Virgin Money, if you like. And since we bought Northern Rock, um, we've looked at almost every potential transaction that the world of banking can throw at us. And um, we've uh, bought one credit card portfolio from MBA and a small mortgage book from actually the, the other side of Northern Rock, the, the, the UCAR side of Northern Rock. So the point I'm trying to make is we do look at everything, but we won't do anything that's uh, going to spoil the business that we've built that's virgin money. So not a yes, but not a no either. As I say, we look at everything. <laughs> okay. Um, and I want to ask about executive pay. We're in the middle of yet another shareholder spring. Are investors right to question it? Yeah, I mean, I think, of course, it's right that um, everybody's held to account by these sorts of um, shareholder groups, compliance functions within those shareholder bodies, and that we are all um, encouraged by the media as well to question ourselves around whether or not we're doing the right or the wrong thing. And I, I think it's working. I mean, I can see in my own uh, smallish world at Virgin Money that, you know, we're very aware of if we were to change our remuneration policy, how would that be received? Is it fair? Are we doing the right thing? Um, and so I think that that constant questioning is really excellent for... It's, it's, it's a bit a bit like uh, the way democracy works, isn't it? That actually, I think there's an awful lot of questioning at the moment around you know what's happening with democracy and populism, etc. But the fact that we're questioning ourselves about that should mean that we move on to a next great phase, I think. Uh, and I think the same is true in the much smaller world of uh, executive remuneration. We should be held to account. And so um, I guess the specifics sometimes can be difficult to deal with, but in general, I think it's a, a good thing. Jeremy Corbyn wants to impose a 20 to 1 pay ratio on companies, is that fair? I mean, I, I don't think I and I I personally don't understand the ratio point. I mean, I completely understand that the gap between the wealthy and the not wealthy in our country is broader than anybody would like it to be. On this, at the same time, I think you have to make sure that you incentivise people to create work and jobs that are going to be good for everyone. So, I mean, I haven't thought about it hard enough, I suspect, to know where I sit on that particular scale. But I'm definitely more of a sort of free market person in that sense than, than somebody that would have uh, quotas and uh, and limits. I guess my last question is you talk a lot about your daughter, Amy, in the book. If she decides to go into finance, mm -hmm. what will your advice to her be? Um she, of course, tells me that the last thing she wants to do is to go into finance. <laughs> Good girl. Yes, yeah, so um, But who knows? She's not 15 yet, so who knows where that will go. But if indeed she or any other um, teenager wanted to go into finance, um, I'd be saying that don't be put off by the stories that you hear. You know, the, the cultural issues that led to the financial crisis are definitely being dealt with. There's a lot of really good people that really want to make a difference in financial services, whether that's through gender equality, you know, regulatory reform, diversity, or, you know, the things that needed to be needed and still need to be done. 
Um, but there's a real openness to change. And I think the real opportunity for people entering financial services these days is to realise that they can be part of making this change happen. And it's really essential and they can change the world. And I think it's really important in any job that you do to not just do it for the job, but to do it for what you can achieve with that. And you can achieve a lot in financial services and in other professions, of course, but there's a lot to do in financial services. Just out of interest, what does she want to do? Um, I don't think she knows particularly yet, but she's very interested, funnily enough, in media. Well, get her to come and talk to me. Oh, that'd be lovely. <laughs> With thanks to Jane Angadia and our podcast producer, Jamie Wareham, this has been City AM's Unregulated Podcast. Stick about for this week's Twitter conversation. Remember, as well, subscribe in all the places and please give us an iTunes rating or rating wherever you listen. Every podcaster says it, but it does make a massive difference. Help us with our iTunes ratings and we'll help you with your professional development. Email advertising at audioboom.com if you want to put your brand to our ABC One millennial audience. Remember, guys, we love hearing from you about your careers or just how much you love the podcast. Like, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Kifi Yap, a new recruit who tweeted to say how much they loved our Dragon's Den episode, which is number 38, and that Unregulated was their new favourite commute podcast. Cheers. See you next week. City AM Unregulated is an audio boom production.